We're outside the travel agency, a cannabis store that's got everyone buzzing. I've been to dispensaries all over the United States, but I've never seen one this unique. So nice. Amazing vibe. Some of the best customer service I've had in a store. Blows my expectations out of the water. Come down to the travel agency and see for yourself. For use only by adults age 21 and older. Keep out of reach of children and pets. In case of accidental ingestion or overconsumption, contact the National Poison Control Center. Consume responsibly. Hello and welcome to the Sharpening Report. I am your host, Josh Peck. I am so glad that we can finally welcome on today's guest. This is a guy that I've been trying to get on the show for a while. He's been trying to get on the show for a while. It's, it's one of those, it's one of those friends that you have that you've never met before. It's kind of been, uh, like that. But, uh, Dr. Judd Burton, he's here to talk about, now this is a mouthful, but don't get scared because we're going to break it down and it's going to be fascinating. But he is here to talk about a recent report called The War of, The War of the Word. God Kings and Their Titles, a preliminary report on the linguistic relationship between the Rephaim and royal titles in Eurasian languages. Like I said, I know that sounds like a mouthful, but don't click off this video. It's going to be fascinating. Who are the Rephaim? You know, what, what's, does, is there any relation to the Nephilim? All, all of this in these ancient languages and more. We welcome to the show Dr. Judd Burton. How are you doing, Judd? I'm doing great, Josh. How are you? I'm doing great. I am so glad to have you on the show finally. And yeah, again, my apologies that it's taken so long, but you know, God, it's, it, I think it's a God's timing kind of thing. He's got his own time and, uh, and it, we're, we're, this, this worked out well that we were able to finally do this. What was it that Robert Burns said? Uh, the best laid plans of mice and men. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Uh, so for those who might not be familiar with you at all, uh, can you give some of your background, how you came to know Christ? Also, this is nice, too, because this is actually a tradition that we have on Sharpening Report. Every new guest, their first time, must give their testimony. So, uh, yeah, g give us your, your how you came to know Christ, uh, what you do today, how all that kind of came together. Give us some of your background. I suppose you could say that my, my journey of faith and, and my journey as a scholar both of those things are very closely intertwined. I grew up in a, a Christian home in a, a little town in, in West Texas that I've actually returned to. I had the, the blessing of growing up in a Christian home. My grandparents, particularly my maternal grandmother uh, and my great aunt and uncle on my mom's side, were really influential. And I, I come from a, a Southern Baptist background, and so... You know, it was a world of training union and Bible drills, and you were going to church three or four times a week. You're just always there, and you, you know, which which sounds really rigorous, you know, by by some church standards today. But I mean, the the good thing about it is that you, you know, if you applied yourself to it all, you 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 came out with a, a very decent biblical literacy. I came to Christ when I was 10 years old. It's just been a roller coaster ride since then, just in terms of you know the revelatory process. You know when you when you graduate from drinking milk to eating more solid food in the study of the Word. But it wasn't very much longer after that that the pastor of our church, whose brother-in-law was a, a professor of New Testament and Greek at a local university, uh, befriended me sort of took me under his wing. He was also an archaeologist, by the way. The late Dr. George Knight became very influential in ways that I didn't even know at the time. 
but he would come over and do, you know, specialized Bible study. And I was like the only nine or 10 year old in a room full of, you know, older, older men, you know, I say older at the time, but you know, 30, 40, 50, 60. I was this annoying little kid picking his brain about, you know, the history of the Bible and meaning of words and what have archaeologists found lately? What have you been doing? That sort of thing. And so he, he sort of took me under his wing and I would later study uh, New Testament and, and Greek with him at, at the, that local university. And he was actually the one that suggested that I go on an archaeological expedition to Bonius, Caesarea Philippi. And I went there, of course, thinking, well, this is just science. I'm learning the rudiments of archaeology. This will get me into, you know, antiquities and the biblical studies and history and that, you know, that sort of thing. But as I began to prepare for the journey and the, the months before that, of course, I found all of this apocryphal literature that dealt with the Mount Hermon region and that sort of started me down the the rabbit trail of the a rabbit hole rather of the watchers and the nephilim and the pre-flood world and bonius would eventually become a, a sort of antiquarian obsession for me because i eventually wrote a, my dissertation on its religious history you know much of which deals with that that prehistoric and antique phase but I say all that just to say that I've had the good fortune of having family members, family friends, and mentors, both in undergraduate and at the graduate level, who have been people of faith and have, have been very influential in uh, facilitating this growth. And I, I think they, to their credit, I think they understood the marriage of faith and scholarship, which is has become increasingly difficult in academia, and I can speak to that certainly having been an academic for 20 years. Yeah, long story short, that's that's sort of where I, I, I came from, and uh, for a long time I thought that I was going to be a guitar player in a heavy metal rock and roll band, and my other love was history, and so I chose to go that route and keep music as a hobby. That's awesome. There, there's a lot of uh, points of correlation between your testimony and mine. I was also raised in a similar type of uh, church environment, you know, really rigorous. It wasn't technically Southern Baptist, but it may as well have been. It was, you know, King sure. James only, and it was like really like, like you know, right. you got to keep your hair a certain length, like that kind of stuff. And right. <laughs> so uh, I grew up right. in that environment. I ended up falling away from uh, the church for a large portion of my uh, late teens, early adulthood, got into new age kind of garbage and stuff. And then uh, eventually God pulled me out of that. I rededicated my life to Jesus. But it's funny because uh, I also I also play guitar and drums. I wanted to be in a rock band. I, I, think, I think a lot of people probably had that same kind of aspiration. And um, I, 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 for the longest time, until I actually came back to Christ, for the longest time, I, I just I kind of knew I was going to do something with writing, but I always hated it. I love it now. Uh, I also hated history, which I love now. But um, I always ran away from that kind of stuff. And I think it was just being brought up in the public school system. You know, they, they kind of make you write about stuff that you might not be interested in. And it kind of kills, uh, for me anyway, it kind of killed a passion for it. But what what brought me in, and, and this is what I want to ask you about, because uh, you mentioned something that you, you became interested in the Giants and, and Watchers and Mount Hermon. That was the exact thing that brought me in as well. A, a few years ago, um, when I finally, you know, when I learned about the, the Nephilim in the Bible, it just opened up so many answers to questions that I had all my life that I didn't, I wasn't ever given an answer for, like in the church that I grew up in. I would be the kid that would ask about aliens. What about ghosts? You know, and they would say, well, that's just all demonic, Josh. And and I'd be like, yeah, but how do we know that? You know, what, what, was, what does the Bible say about it? And they'd say, well, you just take it on faith. 
like that's an answer, you know. <laughs> so I did not find that answer satisfying. Um, that's actually kind of what launched me into New Age for a while. Thank God I got out of that because it's very, it's a very destructive uh, uh, system. But they were they were giving me answers. I thought. And they were taking my question seriously. Um, so it was actually through uh, uh, L.A. Marzulli that I got introduced into Nephilim stuff. You know, I just happened to be watching uh, TV, flipping through the channels. The show comes on called Sid Roth, Sid Supernatural, and I watched it for a few minutes. And this guy was talking about aliens and Mark of the Beast and 666 and the Nephilim, which I had never heard of before. And I was so fascinated by that, that, that this stuff was actually in the Bible. It launched me into actually wanting to do Bible study. Uh, it eventually led me to decide that I wanted to be in full-time ministry, which I am in now. But it was through that through that 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 revelation of the Nephilim giants, watchers, Mount Hermon, and I've I've heard so many other people have a very similar testimony that during that time there was something about that topic that kind of brought them into this. Did you did you have a similar experience? I was always curious about passages like that in the Bible. I like what our good buddy Mike Kaiser says. If it's weird and in the Bible, it's probably important. Well, yes. That's, that's true. And I always wondered about passages like that. I'm like, what is this weird? I mean, like almost out of the gate. It's <laughs> you get to Genesis two and three and it's you're like, what what's going on? What is this place Eden? It's it's like heaven and earth intersect and Adam <laughs> and Eve are talking to God and there's this talking snake. I mean, what's going on here? And then you get to Genesis 6 and there's all the sun. Who are these sons of God people? You know, most of the camp is saying that they're human, but then it says that, you know, what are these mighty men of, of old? This sounds like stuff that I'm reading in, you know, Edith Hamilton, you know, yeah. Greek mythology and stuff like that. Yeah. And I had no choice but to devour stuff not only the Bible, but also the classics, because my grandmother was a librarian, and I spent a lot of time after school as a kid, you know, reading, you know, Bullfinch and uh, James Fraser's Golden Bow, and, you know, just stuff that kids my age probably shouldn't have been reading, but I was reading anyway. <laughs> but, it, you know, I mean, it was idyllic, too. It was Tolkien and Lewis and all that stuff, too. As I was doing that, you know, God was sort of molding my approach to the Bible, you know, and looking at the Bible through the lens of culture and mythology and, and actually getting into the minds of people at that time without even knowing that those are the parameters of the questions that I, that I was asking. All of that kind of literature was available not only at the library where my grandmother was the librarian, but her own personal library. My great aunt was an ardent student of biblical prophecy, and so you know she always had books of Hal Lindsey's Lake Great Planet Earth. You know, <laughs> is the one that stands out. But there were a lot. You know, there there were other pamphlets and stuff that she had. And at the same time, I was watching Star Wars and Empire Strikes <laughs> Back and Return of the Jedi, and you know just just wondering about the possibilities. So even at that malleable age, you know, God was sort of working on my approach to the Bible. I was always attracted to what was weird in the Bible anyway. The churchy stuff that's in the Bible that usually gets taught from the pulpit or Sunday school or, or training union or whatever is necessary, but so is this other stuff. Yeah. You can't cherry pick. You can't take the supernatural elements that you don't want. And so I think from an early age, I was trying to piece all of that together. And as I became aware of my own need for grace, my own need for redemption, that became part of the journey as well. But it was probably my 
proclivity to looking at that in a kind of Fox Mulder meets Indiana Jones sort of a way that planted the seeds for me doing the kinds of things that I do right now. That's so cool. And I can definitely relate to that. I've, I've always loved, like ever since I was a kid, I always loved science fiction stuff, anything with aliens in it or like weird quantum physics stuff, like uh, alternate dimensions and always, I, I right. was always fascinated. And it's, it's so funny because I look back on that now and I can see God's providence in that. I can see how like, Absolutely. you know, now it makes sense. You know, God is actually, uh, you know, used that and built a ministry somehow with that weird stuff. Uh, you know, th- through that, you know, all glory goes to God. None, none of it's me. If it, right. if it was me, I would Amen. still be a, a new ager, probably OD'd on drugs or something. Because I, I, I was a wreck before Jesus. But, um, but it, it's really cool to look back on those kinds of things and see like, Oh, I, I see what that was all about. You know, when I was a kid, I felt like a loner, but it makes sense now. And it was totally worth it. Uh, you brought up your, uh, the kinds of things that you do now, your, your most recent research has to do with the Rephaim. And this is something I've always been curious about. A lot of people have been curious about this because it seems like opinions are split. Um, and not, not, it seems like not, as much is known in in kind of our mainstream fringe circles uh, on the Rephaim as much as the Nephilim. You know, it seems like a lot of people get the Nephilim pretty well, but Rephaim is something uh, that's a little bit more mysterious. And your most recent research has to do with that and the words for king and ruler. Uh, So how did this project begin? The way all weird projects begin, in the middle of the night. (laughs) (laughs) It's about about two weeks ago. Uh, I was joking with Derek the other day that there there were no Sumerian grammars piled up on my desk. I, there were no papers and books scattered. All It was nothing like that. It was probably, I guess, about two weeks ago now that I woke up in the middle of the night. I'm back in the lecture hall thinking about teaching my world civilization students. And I, I used to use an exercise to illustrate the change of, of languages, particularly Indo-European languages, since we were dealing with the old world and how different languages split off from this proto-language, proto-Indo-European that linguists have reconstructed. I won't go into all the details. It's mathematics and algorithms and all that. We humanities people cringe at, but uh, (laughs) it makes sense that this proto-language existed, and it came from a place in West Central Asia between the, the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea and kind of the Urals on the north end and eastern Turkey, northern Mesopotamia on the southern end. And branches of people, you know, waves of migration came out of this region over thousands of years and the people that ended up in india who pushed out the indus river valley people or or at least conquered them and then incorporated them around 1500 bc the word that i inevitably went to with my go-to word was king Mm -hmm. and so in sanskrit for instance what that language became in india the word was rajan for king well another group at some point, broke off, went to the Italian peninsula, became the some of the Italic tribes, probably not the Etruscans. They're a different bunch, but people that became the Romans, their word in Latin for king was rex. You can start to see some phonetic similarity, and then when you begin to study other words, for instance, Romance languages that, that were offshoots of Latin, Spanish, king is re, in French, it's Roy, so on and so forth. You can begin to see a, a morphemic similarity, and a morpheme is basically beyond the syllabic components of a word. You can break down words into the smallest kind of constituent parts, and a morpheme is basically that unit. You can see the initial morpheme there, the R, 
consonant in the vowel, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's a, an A or a, an E or an I, you can play a little, you know, loose and fast with the vowel, but the idiom, the cognate, the shared idea is retained. And so as I'm staring at my ceiling at three o'clock in the morning, I also start to think about some of the work that Derek and Mike Heiser and Amar Anus uh, had done on, on words like Rephaim and the similarities that it had with geographically proximate languages. The similarity between Rephaim and its roots and these other proximate languages like Akkadian, where you find Rapi and Rabu as words for prince or king or ruler. And then in that material gets really fleshed out in discussions of the funerary cults and the spells and incantations associated with that in the Ugaritic material of the Phoenician culture. That's really interesting that looking at this Semitic ancient Near Eastern material and just this handful of Indo-European words, Eurasian bits of, of language, that's really interesting that they share this morpheme that traced a jagged sort of a trail back to Rephaim. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote all that stuff down on my phone. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to hit this, I need to finish my night's sleep and just hit the ground running tomorrow. So the next day I thought, okay, following this logic, if I did a a very cursory survey of words in European and Asian languages, how many words for king or ruler might I find with this shared morpheme and shared idiom within those geographical parameters? And I was astounded by the number of words that I found. And again, this is just the tip of the iceberg, really. And I include the best case scenarios, but I came up with a list of about 70 or 80 words that shared this morpheme. Then that made me think, well, I wonder if this is by design. Right. And I wonder if that design can be traced back to the Rephaim, if this isn't some sort of cultural engineering that clearly you can see begins in that sort of cultural manipulation, cultural engineering, if you will, takes place in the pre-flood world with the Watchers and the Nephilim. Is it rebooted in post-flood world with this, for lack of a better term, the first generation of giants after the flood? Do they reinstate this god-king idea? And I think that's what happens. This idea begins to take on the hues of reality, too, when you begin to consider that virtually all early ancient civilizations, and now we know late Pleistocene prehistoric civilizations, were theocratic monarchies of one sort or another. In other words, politics and religion sort of rode in the same cart, and you had these autocratic rulers who either thought of themselves as gods or considered go-betweens or emissaries between the gods and humanity or the people that they ruled over. People can think of the pharaohs in Egypt, particularly the Old Kingdom pharaohs, thought that they were incarnations of the god Ra. Well, I don't think that that's incidental or a peculiarity of a given theology. I think it's because they were initially ruled over by these god kings, these semi-divine beings. And at least for the post-flood world, the best candidate for those identities seem to be the Rephaim. Is this part of the design? When you consider, again, in the scope of world history, sort of looking at it longitudinally, that monarchy and autocracy have been the rule, not the exception. Mm-hmm. Governments like the ones in the West, and particularly the United States, 
are the extreme exception yeah. to the rule. And this was both exciting to me as an idea as a scholar, but it was also disturbing to me because it seemed to be one more piece of the puzzle because these kinds of manipulations, you know, as believers know, fit in perfectly. They're perfectly congruent with the, the behavior of the demonic realm. Mm. You know, we see this time and time again, this kind of manipulation of, of ideas. And is that a psyop? Is it technology? Technology or is it magic? I don't think that there's a dividing line between any of those in, in this case or in mo most of the stratagems employed by the demonic, whether it's going all the way back to the Watchers or the present darkness that we have to deal with today. Bringing it back full circle, it, it, it seems that there's a linguistic component to this and a trail just just with this one word and you know now it makes me wonder well what else is lurking out there and hiding in plain sight yeah that makes me wonder that too and, and so if we take that if we if we take that understanding that linguistic understanding of, of the word rephaim and apply that uh back into scripture back into the bible um and if we compare it with other words that kind of seem related but aren't exactly the same thing, like you know Nephilim or, or Watchers or all that, we 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 put it in that ancient understanding. When we read about Rephaim in the Bible, what what are we reading? Who were the Rephaim? Well, the first instance of these giants is in Genesis 14. You know, again, almost right out of the gate, you're confronting what superficially seem to be these anomalous passages in the Bible. For people who are, are familiar with that passage, this has to do with a, a war between an Eastern coalition of kings and a coalition of kings uh, kind of in the Transjordan region. The kings in the Transjordan region are referenced in conjunction with the Rephaim. And a possible implication there is that at least some of them were Rephaim. It's also possible that some of these kings in the east were giants of some sort. Even one of the characters, Amraphel, you see that component in his name, the R-A-P, mm -hmm. is part of his name. It shows up in other names like Hammurabi uh, oh. as well. There's this stuff that's kind of hiding in plain sight. The Rephaim seem to be the, the first of these god kings in the, the post-flood world. And we even have some pretty good character sketches, or at least one good really fleshed out character sketch of a relatively late Rephaim. He's described as a remnant of the Rephaim, Og of Bashan. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's during the conquest period, and you know, people will date that you know, variously between 1400 and 1200 BC. That's comparatively late. Og may have been an exceedingly long-lived uh, individual as well. He may have been around you know, since that period that was most proximate to the, the deluge on the post-flood side of it. By that time, by the conquest time, you have a lot of giants who are woven in, you know, just looking at this anthropologically, they're woven into the fabric of the culture of the time. And, and yeah, they may be kings, but they may also be mercenaries of a sort, like Goliath and his brothers. They've got this mercenary feel to them, or, or they've hired themselves out to the Philistines, even performing some sort of political function within the context of the military structure that they operate. In. Whatever the case may be, their presence is very clear in the ancient Near East. What's interesting about their name is that it's usually translated as, as wraiths or shades or ghosts or dead ones or something like that. Right. Often associated with Sheol, the Jewish conception of, of the underworld. And in like manner in these other languages, like in Mesopotamia, the occurrence of Rabu, that last part, the AB or the AP part of that word, has to do with the abyss. Mm-hmm. The second generation of gods ended up as rulers in the underworld. They were revered and, and worshipped. And as I said a moment ago, that 
idea gets really fleshed out in the Ugaritic material where you actually have details about that funerary cult or these long-dead, revered ancestors. Their power is not only sought after, but they also have to be placated. And so there are all these hoops that you, you had to jump through to placate them. So this connection between the gods of the underworld and the Rephaim is clear even in the name. How much of that idiomatic baggage has been drugged through the centuries and the millennia, if my theory's right about the connection between those Indo-European words and the Rephaim, because inevitably you're you're going to have diffusion between cultural groups. It's just it's a cultural invariant. The uh, Indo-European, Proto-Indo-European world and the Proto-Semitic worlds were proximate. You know, like I said, that the southern end of the Proto-Indo-European heartland was eastern Turkey and northern Mesopotamia. If there's a Proto-Indo-European and a Proto-Semitic, and you've got geographical bordering, geographical pro- proximity then hypothetically there may may be an older proto language shared but or pid, some kind of pidgin language that was shared between those two groups and this word may may be far older than the, the Mesopotamian variants of it that we find in Akkadian material, especially when you consider that the Akkadians borrowed so many of their words from the Sumerians, or at least a good number of them. And the Sumerians were, in fact, not native to Mesopotamia. They migrated down from this Caucasus region between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. They were, for all intents and purposes, Indo-European. The name Sumerian was given to them by the Akkadians. The Shemer was an Akkadian word. The indigenous name for the Sumerians was Kian Gir, and it meant something like the black-headed ones or the dark-eyed ones or something like that. And that's an allusion to the genetic phenotype appearance of of people uh, in that region. When you also consider that Noah and his family basically restarted after the ark settled in the mountains of Ararat and and sort of spread out from that region, inevitably, whenever the people that became the Sumerians came down through this region, they would have been impacted culturally linguistically, et cetera, et cetera, by coming through this region. And so I know that's kind of a roundabout way to go about it, but when you, when you look at it, these words may be far older than 5,000, you know, 6,000 years old, depending on what, you know, chronology people subscribe to. And I'm not here to debate that, but just sequentially, if you think about these developments in historical languages, think about them as a deposition of strata, like in an archaeological record. You know, however you date them, the sequence, I think we can all agree upon. And, and this speaks to the, the extreme antiquity, I think, of this idea going back to right after the, the flood essentially. If there was this shared proto-language, even shared mutually intelligible dialects of the same proto-language, that well, that starts to sound like the same language that everybody was speaking before the Tower of Babel. Yeah, that that's what immediately came to mind as well. And some, something else that uh, kind of jumped out when uh, uh, you mentioned the abyss and that, that Ab word was Abaddon, Apollyon, that we read about in Revelation that's, right. that's in the abyss and that, that we read in is a... Yeah, we read as a king over these fallen locust creatures, and I do want to ask you about that. But before we do, I want to I want to find out if there is a connection between the Rephaim and and Abaddon. But before we do, uh, we are going to have to switch over to members only. So if you are not um, if you're not a member at DailyRenegade.com, uh, if you're watching this for free on YouTube, we do switch over about halfway through the show. We switch over to members only content because you, YouTube has a nasty habit of uh, deleting our videos. They actually have deleted a whole channel 
couple of hours. So we need to keep everything backed up. So we do that at dailyrenegade.com. You can head over there now and get a uh, membership. You can even get a free seven-day trial. So there is no excuse to miss the rest of this interview. You can head on over there right now, dailyrenegade.com. So if you are a member, hang on the line. we got a lot more to talk about. And if you're viewing this for free, thank you so much. And until next time, take care. God bless. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.